Would you please give a warm spark welcome to Dr. Diana Butler-Bass. I'm so um, happy to be here. The last time I was here was um, in October of 2016. And uh, that was before the darkness fell. I was uh, working for just a month as a spiritual companion to a Presbyterian church in Portola Valley. When uh, Kevin and Danielle figured out that I was in the neighborhood, they asked me to come over here and uh, be with you uh, one evening. And it was, for me, uh, a beautiful and amazing and wonderful thing. It was so nice to finally meet Danielle, who I'd had um, sort of interaction with online. And um, I don't know if you quite understand how what you're doing here is so special. Um, Typically, the rooms that I'm in, uh, churches are very divided along racial lines. And um, I walked away from Spark in October 2016, seeing something that was beautifully possible, having an amazingly diverse congregation Uh, gathered around Jesus Christ. And um, this is still very uncommon, but I do believe in my deepest heart that it has to be the way we're going to move in the future. And so thank you for having me in your midst. Um, When I was here in October 2016, I was sitting over there in Portola Valley in the Presbyterian manse, most of my time working on a new book. And, and it was in that time that this little book, uh, Grateful, just existed here and in my heart. And now I'm back, and it's getting ready to, to launch and go on sale in, in the beginning of April. I wanted to share with you a little bit of the story about writing that and then share with you this Bible story that's behind me. The contract for Grateful was signed in the spring of 2016, and I knew that I wanted to write a book on gratitude. It was very important for me personally for a number of different reasons, some of which we can talk about during question and answer time. Uh, But what I discovered was in 2016, as the year unfolded, it became harder and harder and harder to feel grateful. And so by the time I was here, I I live outside of Washington, D.C. By the time I was here as a spiritual companion of that church in Portola Valley, I hadn't really written a word. I had outlined the book. I had been thinking about it. I'd done a lot of research. But my heart wasn't in the right place to write a book on gratitude. And so I kept telling myself, just wait until November 8th. And then everything will be okay. You'll feel so much better and you'll be able to finally write a book on gratitude. (laughs) Well, as uh, we all know, uh, that's not really what happened for many of us is that we did not wake up that morning and feel like we were really grateful and uh, it became harder. And so I went into really a depression for about six or eight weeks uh, following November 8th. I was back home by then in in D.C. And uh, yet I'd wake up in the morning and I'd say to myself, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? I have a contract to write a book about gratitude. Maybe I can write about something else. And um, no, it was just sitting there on my desk. 
And so finally, in January 2017, I started pulling myself together and began writing about gratefulness. So that's how I spent the first 100 days of Donald Trump being president of the United States, writing a book on gratitude. And uh, what I learned is that gratitude is not just about good feelings, and it's not just about flowers and smiles and all those things we sometimes associate with gratitude, but that gratitude is actually a deeply radical social practice that might just be the way through and out of the mess that we're currently in. And so I want to share a little bit of that discovery with you today by focusing on this story um, that's up here behind me, a very familiar, usually seen as children's story from uh, Luke about Zacchaeus. And I'll just read you the 10 verses of this story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, and since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, you might wonder what that little story has to do with gratitude. If you grew up around a church um, like I did, this story is one of those enduring stories. I think it was probably the third Bible story I ever knew after Christmas and Easter stories. And if you didn't grow up around a church, it's a cultural kind of story. It shows up in a lot of different places. So this is a famous little tale uh, from the Gospel of Luke. And we can think of it just as what it says on face value. Zacchaeus was a short little guy. Jesus is coming to town. He wants to see Jesus. So he climbs up to get a better look. And the story proceeds from there. Zacchaeus has changed. Salvation happens. Now, that's what it looks like if you don't know all of the historical and political background of what's going on around this story. What's happening around this story really colors the story in such a way that begins to help us understand that this is actually a story about gratitude. And it's about the political dimensions of gratitude. This structure, the pyramid, is, of course, one of the most dominating social structures that humankind has ever created. This is a picture of the pyramid social structure of ancient Egypt with Pharaoh on top, all of the descending ranks of uh, 
people in the middle and slaves at the bottom. In the Hebrew scriptures, of course, pyramids show up in the story of the Exodus. When the Hebrew people are held in slavery, they're at the bottom of this pyramid, and God sends Moses to set uh, the people free. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, uh, you know, let my, let my people go, and, uh, and uh, Pharaoh won't. And eventually what happens is that the Hebrew people, the Jews, leave slavery, and they go out and they have their own land. And so the scriptures don't treat pyramids terribly favorably. As a matter of fact, pyramid social structures are often the structures of oppression. Uh, when the people of Israel are freed, they're, they're sent out to their own land to be farmers, to a land of milk and honey where every person will have their own vine and fig tree. And so the vision that God introduces Israel to after the Exodus is a vision of a village with judges in the village and with priests in a village and where the community is like this instead of like this. Well, it doesn't last a whole long time. Uh, the Israelites themselves decide they want a king. God tells them, no, it's a very bad idea, saying, if you get a king, believe me, I can tell you what's going to happen. You're going to pay more taxes. There's going to be oppression. There will be wars. Your sons will be sent off to be soldiers and will be killed. Your lands will be taken away, and you will be slaves or enslave others. Don't do it. I don't want to give you a king. And the people of Israel beg, no, give us a king, give us a king. And uh, God says, it's a bad idea. They say, please, we want to be just like the neighbor's. We want to be just like the Mesopotamians and just like the Egyptians. Give us a king. And God finally says, okay, whatever. <laughs> this is the story of the Old Testament. And what happens is the Jews wind up on the bottom and they get another pyramid eventually. So by the time the New Testament opens, that's what we have. Another pyramid-shaped social structure in which the Jews are the slaves at the bottom an oppressed class of people who are under the yoke of an oppressive ruler. But this time, of course, it's the Roman Empire and not Egyptian pharaoh. And so this is the ancient structure of the Roman Empire. Um, I took this from a fifth grade textbook, so who knows? It might have been yours. Um, <laughs> you can recognize it here. Uh, Caesar and the imperial family um, is at the top, and then each uh, successive class of people until you get down to freed slaves and then finally people who are held in actual slavery. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty straightforward uh, structure. It's always interesting to me about how pyramid social structures survive. Because, of course, the fewest people are at the top, and they have the most stuff. And the most people are at the bottom, and they have the least stuff. And so you would think that this kind of social structure was inherently unstable. That there was no way that it could, could last. But this particular one, the one of ancient Rome is one of the most long-lasting social structures in um, human history. Uh, it lasted at least 800 years just as it was, and then remnants of it are actually still even with us uh, today. 
What's fascinating about the guy at the top up there, he was called Caesar, and that title meant something really important. He was called the Lord and Savior of the universe. And the way that this thing was imagined, and part of the reason it held sway, was because the Lord was at the top. And everything that everyone had in the entire social structure came from the hand of Caesar. Caesar's largesse spread through the whole of this system. So even those people at the bottom who had very little, if they had just a single scrap of bread to eat, it was because it was a gift from Caesar. This idea of the Lord gifting the whole of the people was one of the things that held the pyramid together. For this social structure had a glue, and it was this. It was called the Roman patronage system. Everyone who was at the top was required for, because of their duty, their position, their stature, they were required to be patrons of everyone else who was beneath them. So Caesar patronized this group, and this group patronized this group, and etc., all the way down the hole. And so you have these patrons, and then underneath of them are clients. The gifts that were passed from patron to client were this Latin word, gratia, which is translated into English as grace or favor or gratitude. So already, if you uh, have listened to a lot of sermons, you can start hearing something very important, is that Caesar was the Lord and Savior of the universe whose grace covered the whole of the earth And Caesar's gifts embodied his favor. And that favor was available to all. Now, the clients, those people who received gifts and favor, that would be pretty much everybody here, the clients had to do something in return. And this was a circle of patronage. So, Coming from the patron was grace, favor, protection, provision, food, all of those kinds of things that you need to survive in any kind of uh, social arrangement. And then the people who got those things were required to send a form of gratia back up, in, and that was actually called gratitude. That translates into gratitude. And gratitude was in the form of uh, our loyalty, That was, we were supposed to be utterly loyal to the one from whose hand the gifts came. And uh, we usually owed something financial as part of the deal in terms of tithes and tributes. So you would give back from your uh, money and your earnings uh, to Caesar. Unlike uh, the way churches sort of act about this today when they say, like, there should be a 10% tithe, the enforced tithe from the ancient Roman Empire, from the lower classes towards the upper classes, was 90% of their income. And so you got to keep 10. 
And then everything else went back to Caesar. And then finally, um, your allegiance, your complete and utter obedience. And so if Caesar said, send your son to be part of the army, and I'm going to take your son and put him on the front lines in Britain where he'll fight the Scots, uh, you say yes. And so you owed Caesar your gratitude. You owed him everything. And that's what grace was. It was hierarchically structured. A rich person handing down to a lesser status person who then was required to hand something up. I don't know about you, but this is not the kind of gratitude system that I want to be part of. Indeed, it was a deeply unpleasant system, and there were two very um, painful problems associated with it. One was this, that clients incurred huge amounts of debt towards those who are above them. And this is where we, we still even speak this language. If someone gives you a present, have you ever said to anybody, I owe you a debt of gratitude? Well, this is exactly where it comes from. This idea that there's some sort of obligation to return what you have received. And in the ancient Roman Empire, you were supposed to return it even more fully than what you had originally gotten. So what would happen is poor people would get stuff. They wouldn't get a whole lot, but they would get stuff. And they were expected to return a whole lot. And sooner or later, the poor or even poorer saddled with huge amounts of debts that cannot be discharged. Debts to the temples, debts to pay to the statues of Caesar, uh, debts to pay for the army. Uh, It was just untenable. And so the poor are sinking further into poverty, and the rich are getting even richer out of this gratitude system. And so debt, obligatory response to grace that is given. And then the second problem was this, and you can begin to really see how this whole system structures the way we think about gifts and giving and gratitude, the word quid pro quo. And that is not only the idea of an exchange and a debt cycle that impoverished the clients, but also the idea that the giver would give the gifts only to get something in return. And so gifts were given to control you. I'll give you this money if you do this for me. And so this was one of the ways in which you could maybe have a little bit of say over your own life. If you could kind of rustle up enough cash to give to the tax collector to pay just a little bit of that extra debt off, maybe you could keep your your son at home and have him work your farm instead of having him be sent off for the army. And so the tax collector would literally say, okay, you know, give me a little extra on the side and I'll do what I can do to keep your kids safe or keep your daughter from having to be married off and sent to the next village or having your lands taken away. Quid pro quo, this for that. And quid pro quo worked hierarchically between patrons and clients 
And believe it or not, quid pro quo also worked within class structures where people of the same social status, the senators or whatever, would try to pay one another off in order to increase the amount of prestige they would have before Caesar. So, debt and quid pro quo. There were people in the ancient Roman world, like this guy, Cicero, um, who realized that this was a really bad system, that Roman, the whole structure of Rome dis- depended upon gratitude, and he actually thought gratitude was a virtue, but gratitude was dependent upon patrons who were um, good-hearted, who weren't just giving gifts to get something in return, and it depended upon the idea of people who received gifts to freely give back. And so Cicero thought that the whole system had become corrupted by obligation and by payoff. And so Cicero wrote things like this. Gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues, but the parent of all others. So if we get this right, he said, we're going to have a more virtuous society that will do good for all and will last longer and will be socially beneficial to the whole of the world. Now, what what Cicero, uh, believe it or not, I've actually seen this saying here on mugs in uh, stores, you know, with some little like gratitude tchotchkes. And so uh, here's Cicero's language. And what he's trying to do is he's not giving you a nice gratitude quote for a greeting card or a mug. He's literally trying to correct the abuses of the ancient Roman Empire. But what he did not think about was that it was the, the hierarchical nature itself of this structure that was the corruption. He thought if you could just fix the virtue cycle, if, if givers were more benevolent and receivers were more graceful, then it would be better. But he never suggested taking it down. And that's where we come to this story. If you know all of that, now all of a sudden Zacchaeus is entirely different. Zacchaeus is a Jew and he's a tax collector. Wait a second. How did a Jew get to be a tax collector? Because Jews are on the bottom. Well, the Romans knew how to use this system. And one of the things that they did in their quid pro quo way is once a year, they would auction off a certain number of positions that were higher status positions to oppressed people. And if you had saved up your pennies, you could put your name in the auction and buy a higher status position. And one of the things you could buy was a job as a tax collector because really nobody who was a Roman wanted that lousy job because essentially everybody beneath you hated you and everybody above you was constantly pressing you for more money. Um, But it was better than being a slave at the very bottom. And so Zacchaeus somehow managed to save up his money, buy his way into the system, and he was good at his job. Because by the time we meet him in this story, not only is he a tax collector, but he's the chief tax collector of Jericho, which is one of the most important trading cities in the ancient, uh, ancient world. And so here he is. 
He's bought his way in, he worked his way up, and he's a success. In other words, Zacchaeus had come up in the pyramid structure. Now, Jesus knows this about Zacchaeus, that Zacchaeus is essentially a climber. He is not just a nice little short guy who wants to see the Lord because he thinks he's going to have a nice spiritual experience. He's a tax collector. Here's Jesus is coming to town. Jesus has already said all this really scary stuff about taxes and Caesar and all this kind of thing. Is Jesus going to put Zacchaeus out of business? Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus because he's afraid that Jesus is going to horn in in his action. And maybe Jesus is going to say something that gets everybody to stop paying their taxes. And then Zacchaeus is going to be in huge trouble and maybe even murdered or sent to jail by his Roman overlords because he can't collect the money. So Zacchaeus has got to see what Jesus is up to because he's got to keep his eye on this guy. So Zacchaeus goes to the edge of town and he does the only thing he can think he can do because he is short. Um, And he climbs a tree because that's what Zacchaeus always does when he wants to get ahead of anybody. He climbs up above them. Zacchaeus is the guy who cut in front of you at the lunch line and stole your lunch money. He's the guy who beat you up on the playground in order to get ahead of you in any other sort of line. Zacchaeus is not a good fellow. Zacchaeus is the one who is out for himself in the middle of this unjust system. And so Jesus comes into town, he sees Zacchaeus in the tree, and he says, come down. Come down, Zacchaeus, and I'm going to come to your house today. And at that point, everybody around gasps. Because if it isn't perfectly clear to the people who are watching this happen, that this is about politics. See, it doesn't look that way to us because we don't live in the ancient Roman Empire, well, more or less. Um, so, but it's not as clear to us that this is about politics as it was to them. When Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today, invitations to dinner were part of the gratitude system. And that is only a higher status person could ever issue a dinner invitation to a lower status person. And if a higher status person invited you for dinner, well, then you were going to owe them a debt of gratitude that would eventually have to be discharged. So say the story was different and Zacchaeus met Jesus at the gate and Zacchaeus says to Jesus, come to my house for dinner today. That would mean Jesus would be in Zacchaeus's patronage cycle and that Jesus would owe Zacchaeus and that Zacchaeus could control Jesus. But the first thing Jesus says to Zacchaeus is come down out of that tree and I'm coming to your house. He invites himself for dinner, functionally putting Zacchaeus inside of his patronage system. And that's why everybody is so shocked Because, wait a second, how can that happen? No low-status person could ever invite a higher-status person to dinner. Because now Zacchaeus is going to owe Jesus. 
And so Zacchaeus responds by saying, oh my gosh, yes, yes, come to my house and I'm going to give away all this money. Zacchaeus wasn't really doing that out of the good of his heart. Zacchaeus was doing that because it was the patronage system. He knew that he had to give back something to the person who was now the patron. And what happened here is that Jesus reversed the entire system and structure of the gratitude patronage system. And Zacchaeus allowed himself to be put into that different kind of arrangement. Instead of being at the top, now Zacchaeus was going to be at the bottom. But Jesus, of course, knows no top and bottom. It's not about a Jesus pyramid. It's about a table. Jesus invites himself to dine at a table with Zacchaeus. A couple of verses uh, before, a different part of Luke, uh, Jesus says to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they might invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. That little verse, I've never actually heard a sermon preached on that verse. It is one of the most radical verses in the New Testament. You invite because there's no payback. They cannot repay you. And you will be blessed for you will be repaid at the time of the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, yeah, you'll get repayment, but it's going to be a really long time from now. So just don't even think about it. It's not about quid pro quo. Jesus and Zacchaeus introduce an entirely different dynamic. It is about a pro bono world for the good, not a tit for tat. And then, of course, it's not just a free grace, but Jesus has something else to say about this. It comes up in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we prayed it in the, sinner, the sin version today, uh, but in Matthew it comes out this way. When you pray, pray like this. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is not the word for sin or trespasses. It's literally debt. When Jesus says we should pray, we're stuck in this horrible system in which we, the Jews, are at the bottom. And yet Jesus says, we're going to break through this system of indebtedness. And we're going to forgive those lousy, horrible Roman oppressors, no matter how much debt they put on top of us. And we're, we are not going to ever hold anyone in debt as we have been held in debt. We're going to break these chains. And that's what's going on, the dynamic of what's happening with Zacchaeus. Liberation. This is, this little story that looks so much like a child's Bible, Sunday, Bible school story is really the Christian story of the Exodus. 
Come down out of those systems of oppression. Come down out of the branches that you have climbed so hard to get to and spent your last cent to get there. Come down out of holding others in debt and be at the table together with no debt. Freedom. Gratitude is depicted as a circle of grace, as a table of grace, where these two things happen, where all people are liberated from debt and hold no one in debt. The gifts are given with no expectation of repayment and that we live pro bono for the good of all. Um, Jesus doesn't want us here. Because Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen if we climb those branches. Is that we wind up destroying ourselves. Instead, Jesus says, come out of that tree. Sit at this table. And salvation will come to your house. Gratitude is not just about sending thank you cards. It isn't just about a good feeling when things happen to be going well. Gratitude is one of the currencies of the social structure that we're struggling with right now. And it has often been used in a very oppressive way when it is used hierarchically against us. But it doesn't have to be that way. It can be otherwise. Um, Early Christians sometimes depicted Jesus as a new Caesar, which meant that we just moved from one pyramid to a religious pyramid, from the ancient Roman Empire pyramid to a church pyramid. That was a really dumb thing to do. Um, (laughs) But instead, this is probably the vision that God had in mind all along. The idea of the divine radiating through the universe, setting a table for all of creation and all of humanity, where gifts are shared like this among us and by us with no expectation of return, and all are fed, and we experience God's abundance. And so as I close, um, the thing that I learned most strongly from writing this book is that gratitude is political. That it's the invisible argument that we're actually having in our society right now. And as I struggled through those 100 days trying to figure out how to write this book, what I began to notice over and over and over again is that the the person who is currently our president talks about gratitude all the time. The mayor of San Juan is an ingrate because she didn't say thank you for all that was done for Puerto Rico. The UCLA basketball players, are they forgot to say thank you. And, and he was angry at it, tweeted about it, because he saved them from jail in China. 
the advisors have to go around the table with the cameras running saying, thank you, Mr. President. You are the greatest president ever. Thank you is a currency of obedience and loyalty in a pyramid system in which we all know that the wealthier are getting wealthier and the poorer are getting poorer and that debts of gratitude and actual debts are loading down in the system, pushing people further into despair and oblivion. And Jesus enters into the middle of all of this and says, no more vision of pyramid-shaped gods who hold people in debt. But instead, the vision that has always been there, has always been the dream of God, the vision that I bring to you, is the vision of a circle. Where all are welcomed in grace. I don't know about you, But the sense of release, if we could finally be free from this, would be extraordinary. And the only path there is, I think, through this sort of political morass we have right now is to have communities that really understand this and really embody circles of gratitude as models of a different kind of way of relating to one another, of being connected, and of how abundance, gifts, and thankfulness can move around a circle. Gratitude is much more than we can imagine. It's a feeling, and it's also a political vision. And it's Jesus' vision. Amen.